once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal friend, co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic. Just like to give a little public service announcement. Normally, we encourage that you lick your speaker and engage in full open-mouth kissing with whatever audio device, but I currently am sick. In the words of my father, no man has ever been so sick and lived, and yet I suffer so nobly and uh, with so few complaints. The very definition of stoicism. So, no kissing, even if you beg. And with that in mind, I'd like to give a little bit of a disclaimer at the the top of the show, and that is because we've made it big time. For the first time ever, we're going to be talking about review copies, so we can retire now, having received a couple of games in the mail free of charge. We've done what we sought to do, and so we can just uh, end it out. That's right. We've made the big time. We've gotten free games. Mission accomplished. Yeah, so uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Bye. Anyway, I'd just like to spend a little bit of time in full disclosure for those of you that care. Some people don't, but our editorial policy is basically, it's been the same since since the beginning. We're going to say whatever we're going to say. If that causes people to act in certain ways, that's fine. That's on them. And we've said bad things about review copies in the past. In our previous lives as reviewers, we've said good things about review copies in the past. In the past, I've gotten review copies and said nothing about them because I had nothing of note to say. Our standard is always the same. If we have something to say, we'll say it, and that's all there is to it. And basically, if you think that a random free game from the database is going to motivate us to say nice things when we don't enjoy a game, then obviously you haven't been paying attention. I was supposed to say, you have not listened to a show before. Send at your own risk. Exactly. Besides, popular wisdom has it that I don't enjoy anyone or anything, so it's opening yourself up for some pain. At any rate, with that in mind, let us do what we always do and talk about board games. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game today is going to be Quartermaster General. We're also going to be talking about the other Quartermaster General games, but there's also a game simpliciter called Quartermaster General. It's all very, very simple. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll clarify it, no doubt, at great length. We have a chart. Big pie graph. It's going to be fantastic. Oh yeah, visual aids, uh, a whole deck, a uh, full PowerPoint presentation, it's going to be marvelous. And our feature topic this week is going to be gaming conventions. Gaming, so, oh, gaming conventions, you just said cons. I thought it was about including convicts in your gaming group. Look, your, your life at Sing Sing no. is not at, at, at relevance here. How about, how about the myth that your ally in Rising Sun is actually your ally, and that it's a big con? No, not that either. I had a whole list here, okay. How about beware of counterfeit board games and you're being conned? Well, that is actually a risk. Oh, okay. Gaming conventions. All right. Now, I don't have anything for that, but I'm sure I'll make something up at the end. I'm sure it will be up to your normal Sterling standards of highly prepared, well-spun words of wisdom, Walker. So with that in mind, what did you play last week? First on my list, I have a great game, party game called When I Dream. It's a fantastic little game that can play up to eight players. Everyone's given a role. Either you're a fairy or a boogeyman or a sandman. And it's very much in the code names vein where random words will come up. The dreamer is blindfolded, so he doesn't know what the word is. And it will go around the table chameleon style with everyone. Chameleon is another great party word game. Chameleon style where everyone's going to give one word associated with the revealed word. And the dreamer has to guess what it is as quickly as possible, make through it as many words as he can, with the fairies giving good clues, the boogeyman giving bad clues, and the sandman trying to keep the score even. Then at the end of two minutes, the dreamer is going to have to regale, regale us with a story using as many of the words as he can remember, and then points are scored. Fairies will score points for all the words that the dreamer guessed correctly, Boogeyman will score points for 
all the words they scored incorrectly, and the Sandman will get points depending on how even the score is. And the Dreamer scores the fairy points and two bonus points if he included all the words from the fairy pile in his story. And that is When I Dream. Not that I object to gimmicks, but why is the Dreamer blindfolded? That, I was wondering that as well. I think it just leads to the, so you don't see facial expressions, maybe. I looked, I looked in the, I'm going to relook in the rule book. I could have sworn, it, nowhere did it say that you flip up the roll cards, but maybe you do flip up the roll cards. I, I didn't see a reason why it mattered at that particular point because he was blindfolded anyway. Maybe you flip up the roll cards. It's strange. These games seem to come very much like movies. They tend to come in little clusters around the same themes or similar mechanics, which is perhaps not surprising because game design is a very iterative process. But there's a whole bunch of games about dreams that have hit the market recently. There's a game coming out that's getting a lot of buzz at trade shows called Nyctophobia, where you play blindfolded. So it seems this seems to be an intersection of a couple of things that, that are going on. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's always nice to have party games available. It looks a almost like they've made the cards much like other games where you can incorporate them in Mysterium or the cards are very much like uh, codename pitchers because it's very neat because the cards are double-sided and double-ended. So you can use both sides, both ends, and each pitcher has two words on it. So the pitcher incorporates two images at the same time, much like codename pitchers. So you could use it for codename pitchers. Would any of them be good murder weapons in Deception or good band names? Yes. Could the Boogeyman be a new role in Deception Murder in Hong Kong? I think so. Awesome. Boogeyman, Deception in Wonderland. I look forward to the crossover. Last week I got to try Noria. Noria is a Euro game that I've been meaning to try for quite some time. Game highly recommended. And I'll I'll stress right right off the bat what was really, really great about Noria. And this is going to be at odds with uh, some of the things we're going to talk about later. It's been a while since I've been able to introduce a Euro game of anything other than very, very lightweight and be able to say at the outset, this is how you score. This is the one thing that will get you points. Because normally, in middle or heavyweight Euro games, you're going to get a couple points here, a couple points there, a whole bunch of other things. Maybe there's a chief way to get points, but it's usually just a, a an amalgamation of things. And that's even in the relatively clean ones. Once you start getting into the ramshackle contraptions like Stefan Feld designs all, all the time, it can get truly out there. And when I explain the game, I like to start with how you win. This is, you know, just to sort of bookend, this is this is what you're supposed to do, this is how you do it, this is what you're supposed to do. And so when you get to explain Noria, and it is a relatively involved game, there's a lot of stuff going on, and the economy is not trivial, but in Noria, there's one way you score. There are these tracks, and that that's it. Your position on the tracks determines how many points you're going to get. There's nothing else in the game that will get, get you points. And that was very refreshing, the action selection mechanism in Noria is also very refreshing. It's kind of like a build-your-own rondel. We both like rondel games. We both like, well, I, I'm I'm especially a fan of novel action selection mechanisms. It's not the most thematic thing in the world, as you might expect. Noria doesn't have much theme going on. Lovely art, but no theme. And I was a bit intimidated by the rules explanation because, it, it, as I say, it's reasonably involved. But I was very, very pleased. It's been a while since I've enjoyed a, a, a sort of middleweight, themeless economic management game like I did Noria. And so I recommend you give it you give it a shot. And the cleanliness of the scoring system is definitely one of the one of the best selling points of it. Because it helps make the design feel focused in a way that lots of other Euro games don't feel focused. So I'm looking forward to trying it again. I I fear there might be even more so than lots of other games because there's practically no luck in the game and it's a relatively involved economic model and the player interaction, although pretty good for a Euro, 
is not as direct as, say, a bash you upside the head game. I fear that experience in Noria might be purely determinative. Like, if you've played a couple more times than anybody else, you're just going to trash everyone, everyone else at the table. But, you know, that's not so much a slight against the game as it is a characteristic of games of this type. So I was very pleased. I got more or less what I was expecting. I thoroughly recommend it, and I'm going to be trying to get it to the table again soon. That's Noria. All right, I'm going to talk about Feast, of Ro- Feast for Odin, because I know we've never talked about this game before. Never heard of it. Well, let me tell you. I is... hope it's not about Norse mythology, because I hate that. No, it's it's completely not about that. We've talked about it before. I'm not going to bring it, go too much into it. I just want to say how much I enjoy teaching it, and how I've never seen anyone get a negative response from it. Everyone seems to have fun. There's so many different things you can do. Whaling, hunting, breeding animals, 60 different worker placement places to go. Great game. Feast for Odin. I actually saw, I didn't play the game, but I saw the aftermath of it. And I did indeed see that there was there was a definite marked characteristic in terms of what strategy each player pursued. One player went all into whaling. I think that was you, right? Correct. All whaling all the time. Another player pursued a borderline abusive emigration strategy. He had no Vikings left. They were all gone. For anyone familiar with the game, there's this, you know, there's your table that just gets filled up as as your Vikings leave, representing the fact that you don't need to feed your people as much. He had no table left. It was all covered. It was all gone. Everyone left. (laughs) Which sent them away. We're not feeding anyone anymore. Get out. Exactly. Uh, it It was quite striking. Another player at the table had his player board almost entirely covered with blue tiles, but they were all the same blue tile. It was very striking, and again, highlights one of the things that we both like about Feast Roden so much. If you just want to go and do something and explore some corner of the sandbox, you can do that. It's it's almost sort of the corollary of what I said about Noria. In Feast for Odin, you will score in a billion different ways, but they're all sufficiently engaging, and so it's not like a, a Feldian experience where it's like, well, place this tile in a row, and that'll give you this plus three point point bonus at the end of the game or something like that. So despite the fact that I, I prefer it when a game is slightly more tightly focused in terms of its scoring mechanisms, if he's Froden just does it so well that I can't hold it against it. But as you say, we've talked a lot about this game before. Yeah, same feeling I get from Caverna. Very different game as well. It's just an, an joy to play, right? You sit down and you, you, know, you open up your own little world like both. Yeah, and I'll, I'll stress something also, again, just to compare sort of Noria and, and, and Feast for Odin. A Feast for Odin, even when you're doing relatively badly and you're struggling, you can be conscious of the fact that you're not doing terribly well, but you don't feel like the game is punishing you. You don't feel like you're, you're being an idiot. You don't feel stupid. And Noria is pretty good at making you feel stupid. It's, it's kind of like Splatter Games in that sense. We talked about this in terms I was, of... I was about to say, it's probably much like... Uh, uh... Food chain magnet where, you know, after the first turn, you're like, I have errored. Yeah. Well, it's not so much in food chain magnet and like most splatter games in general, you can feel as though at, you know, as of turn two, you've already lost the game. In Noria, it's just that the economic model is relatively transparent and you see the task ahead of you. It's It's an engine builder, not unlike... Not a pure engine builder, but it takes a while for your economy to get up to steam. And until your economy gets up to steam, or if you don't have the play experience to know that your economy will, in Noria you can be in you know, round three or four and looking at what you're doing and saying, how on earth am I going to make any progress? This is terrible! But if you like those kinds of economic challenges, Noria is definitely for you. But I, again, one of the triumphs of A Feast for Odin is giving you the sense of freedom, and while still being challenging, not giving you the sense that you're fighting against insurmountable odds, but... Another classic, not that Feast for Odin is nearly old enough to be a classic, but classic got to pull out. I got to introduce somebody to Space Hulk 3rd Edition, 
which was uh, we'd, we'd been wanting to do this for a while. It was uh, a strange experience because I was trying to give some sense of the theme of Space Hulk. And the person I was playing with, little did I know that they were very, very well versed in the lore of Warhammer 40k. Uh, I think I was halfway through some sort of fumbling generic explanation about what space marines are. And he's like, yeah, these are blood angels, right? And then he starts going on about Adeptus Astartes and all manner of other nonsense that I, I can't even begin to understand. I've I've been playing Space Hulk for over 20 years, but I don't know any much of anything about the Warhammer 40k lore. Anyway, we, we pulled out the classic suicide mission, the only way to introduce people to the game. The person I taught it to very quickly internalized those classic choke points in that ever-so-classic mission. I was playing the Gene Stealers. I, I explained to him at the beginning of the game, look, you can either play the more involved faction, the more the, the slightly more interesting faction, or you can play the faction that's going to win. And because if you're, if you're playing Suicide Mission for the first time, you know, Space Marines aren't making it out alive. We had a great time. Great game. I, I'm, I was reminded yet again of how simple this game is, about how pure it is in terms of the, the, the tactical puzzles that you need to figure out in terms of navigating the map and overcoming the obstacles put out in front of you. Contrasting some of the other games we've already talked about, the rules explanation took barely 10 minutes, if that. Beautiful, beautiful components. Every time I manipulate the components of that game, I'm reminded again about how over the top they went in terms of the quality of production. Those tiles, those embossed tiles, they knocked me out every time. So another convert, I'm going to try to track him down a copy. I think I might have had some success. So that was Space Hulk 3rd Edition, a perennial favorite, and looking forward to many more playings in the years to come. I'm going to talk about Xenoshift, a game from Cool Mini or Not that I feel doesn't get the respect it deserves. It's a Cool Mini or Not game with hold your hat on, no miniatures. It's a deck builder. It's very much in the vein of Space Hulk. You've got all these aliens and or creatures. There's Dreadmire and the original, which are very much the same. Dreadmire introduces this weather mechanic and some other, you know, changes up the reaction a little bit. But great deck builder, fantastic art. Really gives you the feel of that you're defending your section of the base while, you know, you're overwhelming aliens are coming in on you and you're, you know, trying to throw every last bit that you have on it and the way they do cooperative play is really interesting too it's you know you can help the different lanes out if they didn't you know draw what they needed you can you know aid them with more guys or more equipment and they have such a large deck that you can draw from that you're never going to get the same weapons or abilities there's psionics there's there's uh you know mutant manipulation where you're going to graft on alien limbs to your guys it's just an all-around great game it, it can play, you know, four up to four or six, but I think it's either the two or three, I think is the highest you ever want to go with Xenoshift. I think that's honestly the biggest knock against Xenoshift. It, it can take a very, very long time. Uh, it, once you start playing with three, even with two, it can take a, a, a long time. The virtue of a lot of deck builders is that they're quick and that they, you can knock out a game relatively quickly. But I do absolutely agree with you. It's more, much more open and cooperative than a lot of other co-op deck builders. I like Shadow Rift, and indeed uh, the, the new Shadow Rift expansion is just hitting backers right now. I got mine in the mail today, and so we'll probably talk about that in the coming days. But in Shadow Rift, it's a relatively straightforward deck builder in a lot of the traditional ways, in that if I buy a card, it's my card, and it's in my deck, and it's going to be there for the rest of the game. And the pooled resources are only a very, very small subset of it. In Xenoshift, if you buy a card, give it to somebody else. If you draw a card that somebody else needs, give it to them. You can transfer resources as much as you like. And actually, one of the things that I like most about Xenoshift is the fact that it completely got rid of some of the things that drive a lot of other deck builders, namely the economy. 
In Xenoshift, you spend no time buying money because the money is fixed and it's just introduced to the system at a regular rate. I don't mind buying money in other deck builders, but it's hardly the most exciting or interesting thing to play. Paying three for a silver in Dominion or whatever equivalent, because look, you, you, you pay three for a silver in lots of other games that aren't Dominion effectively. It's a fine move, and sometimes it's the right thing to do, but it's not the most interesting or exciting thing to do. So Xenoshift looked at it and said, yeah, we're not going to bother with this. Just money's a fixed thing. You have your money. You're going to draw it at the regular rate, but whatever. We're, we're, you're not going to be buying money. It's just taking care of itself. And I think that's one of those, those little things that Michael Chennault did that really indicates that he's got a good head on his shoulders. And I, we talked last week about uh, – I, I made some disparaging remarks about Matt Hira at Cryptozoic about how he just you know churns out lots of in-house licensed designs. Whereas Michael Chennault, who some, some people regard as basically a hack, I think is actually pretty clever. He, you know, I like I liked what he's done with Rum and Bones. I like what he's done with Xenoshift. And it's sometimes those little flourishes that really separate a great game design designer from a workmanlike game designer. And so aside from the length, I really think that Xenoshift is a top-tier cooperative game. I couldn't agree more. To the length, I'm just going to tack it up to the same thing I said last week with Formula Day. I think that it's just there to give you that feeling of build-up, to give you a chance to have your deck mature with all, you know, the cool gadgets and the improved mechs and giant robots and type stuff like that. I guess. I, I will issue one minor correction, though, before our uh, legion of pedantic fans point out. There was indeed one miniature in the Kickstarter version of Xenoshift. True, but it wasn't. It's just a first player marker, so it's you don't actually use yeah, it in they, the game. So they had to shoehorn it in somewhere. That's true. They they did abandon it later on for the the second wave for uh, for Dreadmire and Immolation. So good good on them for that. On the topic of cool mini or not, I pulled out Massive Darkness. Just a subtle reminder, we're going to be giving away in about a month's time a full Kickstarter pledge of Massive Darkness to one of our uh, listeners for absolutely nothing. More details on that to follow. But talking about all this time, I wanted to, to pull it out again. And, and honestly, I've said it before, Massive Darkness is my preferred version of Cute But Stupid at the moment. If I want to go rack up a huge body count and go around and uh, just move my figures around and toss dice and, and kill massive quantities of things, no pun intended, uh, Massive Darkness is often what I'm going to go to. If if more people are around, I'll pull out one of the, the many two-player skirmish things, but if uh, if we want a co-op high body count thing, this is definitely my drug of choice. I, I'm not a huge fan of Zombicide. I don't really like how it handles searching. It tends to encourage, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but rather dickish behavior where someone's off going and getting their toys. And uh, But uh, Massive Darkness, I think, gets a lot of things right. Assuming, of course, you do not play the stupid campaign mode. The campaign mode is a nightmare and an abomination, and it's only because of the quote-unquote wisdom of the crowd said that it had to have one. But we've talked about that before. So I had a good time with Massive Darkness. I actually really liked the scenario I played. It was about kiting uh, a, a massive boss that would just kill you if if it caught you. So it was sort of a variation on uh, the standard timer missions. It wasn't just a question of, well, there's this thing moving along a path, but you had to set up diversions and, and send it down blind alleys and, and, and try to play keep away with it. I don't know if Walker would consider this the swimsuit scenario. I still don't know what that is. This, uh, it's funny because it just happened in that show that I'm watching now, uh, Young Justice. Same thing. It was episode nine. Off they go to the beach. So all the female characters can be in bikinis, whatever. Moving on. But that's a kid's show, isn't it? I, look, look, I don't write it. I don't write the script. I, I'm just telling you what it is. Oh, boy. All right. So back to – I wanted to make a point. It was the cool hook in Massive Darkness is when – they spawn a room of monsters, you're going to draw the weapon then, and you're going to put it under the boss monster, and it's going to manipulate the stats of that monster. And I think that is a fantastic hook. 
Yeah, it's kind of. I think I find it more cool in theory than it is in execution. I do enjoy the game, but sometimes I think that in Massive Darkness, some of the details don't quite line up. For example, if you get a really, really bad draw on an early monster, you might end up in a situation where it's untouchable, just too many defense dice. And that, in those instances, it is in your interest to ignore it and move on, but uh, that's often not something that gamers feel comfortable doing or, or, or necessarily want to do. But I, it, it's nice. It gives a little little bit of character to all the monsters, and it gives you a nice little toy just when you uh, when, when you deal the finishing blow. There's a lot to like about Massive Darkness. I, I honestly don't know why it gets so much crap when every new version of Zombicide, up to and including Zombabees, just everyone falls over themselves to, to throw millions and millions of dollars at the screen, but I honestly think it was because it had this terrible campaign mode, and everyone defaulted to the campaign mode, and it's it's awful. It's a terrible, terrible game mode. And it was never intended to work that way. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Exactly. And finally, we're going to give you our preliminary comments about a game called Feudum. This is the aforementioned review copy that we talked about at the, the top of the show. This was sent to us by Mark K. Swanson, the designer at Oddbird Games. Feudum is uh, Feudum is a lot of things. The rules explanation took me about 40 minutes, I think. There's a lot going on in Feudum. It's a heavy Euro game. There's board presence, there's economic manipulation, there are these guilds that you need to interact with. There's a whole lot going on. And indeed, on your first play, especially after just the rules explanation is done, you might think there's no way you're going you're gonna to grasp it all. But I will say this. We've played it a couple times now, and it is surprisingly smooth for how much is actually going on in the game. This is nothing like a splatter game, which, is, which, which tend to be minimalistic in comparison. Feudum is a game about subsystem layered onto subsystem layered onto subsystem. If you hate rules explanation that say, oh, and one more thing that I forgot to mention, then stay far away from Feudum. But I was really, really surprised at how nicely everything came together. Long story short, and indeed we'll probably go into more detail later once we have a little bit more time to grapple with the system. There's this board where you're making farms and settling towns and all manner of other things. But all of this is just as sort of fodder to get influence in these six guilds. And you can trade with the guilds, which is just basically how the fundamental economy of the game works, you know, buying a vehicle or buying some of the other resources involved in the game. Or you can, if you have a little bit of influence with the guild, you can do something to score some points. If you have a little bit more influence with the guild, you can do something that scores yet more points. But all of these things have ripple effects. If I score with a guild that is going to have necessarily an economic impact on its neighboring guilds, it's literally neighboring in that all the six guilds are oriented around the board in a clockwise direction. And so if I if I push some goods out from the farmers, what that's going to do is that's going to stock up the merchants. If I push out some of the goods from the merchant, what that's going to do is have more materials available for the alchemists to invent something. If the alchemists invent something, that's going to lead more influence markers for the knights, which in turn, blah, 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 blah. So all this stuff. But I got to say... As the game went on and it started to un- uh, to reveal itself, this was less of a game like Rising Sun. Rising Sun is a game with a- two subsystems where it's not exactly clear what's going to go on. Whereas the, co- the core rules in Rising Sun may be relatively simple to grok. You know, it's not by no means a- 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 an entry lightweight game. But sometimes it's hard to see the consequences of how turn order intersects with your special ability intersecting with a specific mandate that someone picks, which intersects with a card that someone bought, etc., but in Feudum, it was a little bit more transparent about how to make 
how, how to make progress. Now, it was very easy to forget often, okay, how many cubes do I get to push with the merchants? Oh, with the merchants, I get to push four. Oh, with the farmers, I get to push seven past the normal limit because the chickens are here and et cetera, et cetera. Detail upon detail upon detail. So I was, I was intrigued. Uh, I wasn't blown away on my initial playings, but I'm looking forward to trying it more and grappling a little bit more with the system. Everyone seemed to be at roughly the, roughly in the same parameters. Like that was a lot going on, but not bad. This is, however, sort of a closing remark from my perspective. This is sort of the paradigmatic argument in favor of developers game developers as opposed to game designers. Because I've talked before in Noria how it was so nice that there was just one way to score and that really focused the design and gave you something to emphasize. In Feudum, there are literally dozens of ways to score. And I'm not sure that that was necessary. Let me just pick one example to give you a kind of idea about what I'm talking about. Endgame scores tend to be in excess of 120. That's that's sort of a what we've experienced in, in the relatively low player count games that we've played. And there's a card you can play called Harvest, which does a variety of things that interacts with the economy and gives you one point when you play it. And that's the kind of thing that I look at and say, really? Really? Is that one point necessary? Is it really the case that you couldn't have subtly altered the economy there to make it that one point better without having that extra little bit of cruft? And of course, you might be thinking, oh, but Mark, just playing, getting, scoring one point for a card is, is the soul of simplicity. Absolutely. But as I said, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of details in this game and dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways to score. I wish that this game had leaned a lot heavier on its crucial conceit, namely that this is a game all about guild influence. And if they'd been able to pair out practically everything else, if I would be able to set up Feudum and say, look, guys, there's a lot going on, but everything is about the guilds. There's no other way to get points. That helps a lot in terms of comprehension. It helps a lot in terms of focus. It helps a lot in terms of theme. And I'm not necessarily saying that that is what a good developer would have done, but I look at you know, one point for playing this card and two points for doing this other thing if it's rainy on a Tuesday. And I start to think, were all of these things really necessary? So suffice to say, the fact that it's a three to four hour Euro game that takes a half hour at least to explain that I'm willing to play again, I think that tells you that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in there. Perhaps a little bit too much stuff. We're going to revisit this game, I think, after playing it a couple more times. But I'm intrigued. What did you think, Walker? I, you just made the last point was pretty well my point. I can't believe that there's not more stories of people screaming into the night that used to be developers after they've read this rule book. And the only other negative thing I have, because I've only played it a few times, is that I haven't been able to see or grok out what my opponents are going to be doing next turn. So in order to you know make sure I get something done before them or try to block them or or try to manipulate the board into my favor because I, there's so many things they can do. I cannot, I haven't been able to pull in what their options are yet. Hey, it's strange. I was actually reasonably pleased with how the, in terms of the round structure, giving you short-term things to do. Okay, this round I'm doing these two or three things. It is helpful at parceling out the overall arc of the game. So it's not this sort of giant sprawling thing. The rounds give you two or three things to do every round. And that I found very helpful in terms of throttling my information overload as well as helping me get to a place where I could anticipate what other people might be apt to do. But maybe that's just a question of, uh, of different play styles because there is aggression in this game. And if you can't see it coming, then yeah, it's going to feel kind of arbitrary and mean. Uh, there, this is a game after all, where you can, uh, it's, there, there's a whole lot of, 
of real, real, real jerk things you can do. You can literally have a noble wander over to where your serf is tending a farm and starve them to death. This is literally a thing that happens in the game. So <laughs> if if you're not able to see that coming, that could be a really, really unfortunate happenstance. But suffice to say, that once again, there's a lot going on. And that is feudum. Now on to our news and why it does not matter. So first on my list for the news is two new Shadespire factions came out this week and we've tried them both out and I think it was yet another great addition to the game. Some, a fully ranged faction and uh, another chaos faction that has an animal, first introduction of an animal to the game. So that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I look forward to having a friend who would be willing to play it with me, but uh, I don't have any friends like that, so I haven't yet been able to try these factions. Well, here's hoping one day it will come true. Yeah. What's on your list? Rather sad story. This happened, actually, I I read about this immediately after posting our last week's episode. So there was this company, still is kind of, called Borders Tabletop Game Studio, based in Singapore, that basically served as a shipping hub for board gamers in Southeast Asia as a way to reduce customs and shipping fees. And they were handling sort of sub-distribution for projects like uh, not uh, not officially on behalf of, but handling large numbers of pledges for games like Roxley's Reprint of Bla- Brass, uh, Gloomhaven, which is a game you might or may not have heard of, and a whole bunch of other things. And uh, basically they absconded with tens of thousands of dollars in cash and merchandise and have disappeared off the face of the earth. I've been uh, doing some follow-up checking, and there hasn't been any further news. Basically, they've stopped responding to posts. Backers have been left in the lurch, and they don't know where their money or where their board games are. A number of board game distribution companies have confirmed that they delivered their shipments to these individuals, but there's been no news about them sending along the rest of these copies. Some deliveries were made. Some people did indeed get their copies of Gloomhaven specifically from, uh, from, from these people called Borders. But a lot of people have been left in the lurch, and so this is a sad, sad instance. I mean, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they're not carn artists, maybe something terrible happened, but uh, long story short, there's a whole bunch of fellow hobbyists in Southeast Asia that are out lots and lots and lots of money. Lame. Very. Next on mine is there's going to be a Battlestar Galactica pre-painted spaceship battle game. I don't know if they're going to be late to the show. There's already Star Trek tried to come in for X-Wing and Armada's out, but we'll see. It's a genre that I'm interested in. I always loved, they did, I liked how they did the spaceship battle in the show, you know, very quiet space, you know, high maneuverability, tons of missiles from the battle stars. So we'll see if it's a good rule set. Maybe we'll get a foot toe in. I was surprised to see that they're going pre-painted. Pre-painted is very much a rarity now, although to be fair, in the context of ship battles, especially sci-fi ship battles, it is the industry standard. So maybe if indeed they are trying to compete directly against X-Wing, you you probably have to go pre-painted. But then again, if they're trying to compete against X-Wing, good luck, (laughs) because not only do they not have the market penetration of Fantasy Flight and Asmo Day, but also Battlestar Galactica was on the air how long ago? And there's a new Star Wars movie every other week, so ugh, who knows? I mean, I would have imagined the route to success would be a slightly more niche product, you know, smaller smaller scale, but then you, then you don't do pre-paint, then you aim it more towards the traditional tabletop hobbyists, rather than the slightly more mass market of X-Wing, but uh, who knows? And while I'm not big in the Battlestar Galactica world, but I can only think of four ships, right? Two Cylon ships, (laughs) the fighter and the base star, and then you have the big Battlestars and the 
little tiny fighter ships. Uh, so Vipers, I think. The they Vipers, were that's right. The Vipers. So like, not much variety. Yeah. But I'll, then again, like I said, I don't know the world, so maybe they've got another you know book to draw upon or something. I'm just dreading that this is going to cause another spurt of of hearing people say frack and toaster all the damn time at game night. I, I I hate it so much. We can we can hope not. Yeah. All right. My last bit of news is only that the Starship Samurai countdown continues. Greatest game ever. It it's was going to be. It's going to be the bet. It's going to be the single greatest. Look, we we. I, I'm not I'm not one into hype, but I think I can say without reservation and with 100 percent certainty that this will be the single greatest product ever released on the market ever. I'm at the moment throwing my games out the window because I just want this in the center of my display as my one and only true game. Like, that way there will be no options. Yeah, any game on your shelf that isn't Starship Samurai reduces the quantity of Starship Samurai you have in your life. Exactly. You want your game collection to consist of 100% Starship Samurai. And so after you get your first copy, there's only one way to expand your collection, and that is to get a second copy and a third copy. Only the cool kids have them. So when is Starship Samurai coming out? Soon. Oh boy, I don't know that I can wait. How am I, how how am I expected to play all these non Starship Samurai games? I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to play any more games. You're just going to wait. Yeah, sit and wait silently. The only true game is Starship Samurai. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be so bad. I, I'll make sure people know that we do not endorse this game whatsoever. But just the title. Oh no, alone. no, we do. Well, look, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> I just don't want to, you know. That, oh my god, these guys I have are... I have zero substantive opinions about Starship Samurai. But first of all, it is called Starship Samurai. Exactly. And, and, and secondly, the... it's called Starship Samurai. And I mean, the figures look amazing. The figures do look great. So, yes, we're of course going to play it. Yes. We're of course going to try it. I am genuinely enthusiastic about the existence of Starship Samurai. It's true. Even if it's terrible. And that is the news. And why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is the Quartermaster General series. It seems strange that Quartermaster General was only released four years ago, but it came out in 2014. This was a design by Ian Brody and his own imprint, Griggling Games. And the conceit of Quartermaster General is truly audacious. And the, the fact that I've been playing the game for years doesn't in any way undercut. I, I'm still shocked every time I think about the, just the sheer gumption that Ian Brody had to have. He decided that he was going to make a six-player game featuring the entirety of World War II, from 1939 all the way to 45, with all the major powers involved, and he wanted it to play in about 90 minutes and have a rule set that was roughly four or five pages of substantive rules. Now, the fact that this game structurally bears a lot in common with Flux, play a card, draw a card, and and that, that it somehow manages to come out the other end as a legitimately engaging World War II game and a game that feels like World War II is truly a triumph. Now, he followed this up a couple years later with Quartermaster General Victory or Death, which he published in conjunction with a company called the Plastic Soldier Company. And you can probably figure out what they do. And indeed, Victory or Death was about the Peloponnesian Wars, and so it has little plastic Athenians and little plastic Spartans. And it was, instead of a six-player game, it was a four-player game, still in teams. All the Quartermaster General games have been team games, and they probably will remain so. And as we've commented before, in terms of multiplayer conflict, having a team-based structure gets you to a multiplayer game without having lots of the standard multiplayer problems, because you get to internalize the same fundamentally sound dynamic of two players. You don't have to worry about kingmaking, you don't have to worry about turn order nonsense or, or, or things like that as a general rule. And the same year that they put out Victory or Death, they put out Quartermaster General 1914, which is about the First World War, also in conjunction with PSC. 
Now, all the while, while he's been putting out other games in the system, there have also been expansions to the Quartermaster General game. So far, there have been two, namely Air Marshal and Alternate Histories. And this year, Ian Brody is going to be putting out a third expansion to Quartermaster General, the World War II version. This one's simply called Prelude, and this allows you to have a sort of mini-game prior to the commencement of the war, reflecting the rising tensions leading up to the conflagration. We haven't tried the Prelude expansion yet. It hasn't hit the market. And additionally, although this is this is further in the future and we haven't tried this either, there's going to be a three-player version of Quartermaster General using the base base game components to do the Cold War. The three factions being the Americans, the Soviets, and indeed the Third World, because, interesting historical note, the Third World was so called because every country not a member of NATO or the Warsaw Pact was by default the, the, the Third World. But anyhow. So that's sort of the, the, the overall background of the game. I've commented before that I, I, I've spoken with Ian Brody about the, the design, and he comes at it from a very sort of traditional consim perspective. You know, the seven, eight, 10, 12-hour monsters with huge maps and thousands of chits about trying to detail, uh, trying to evoke in specific detail every move and thrust of the Battle of Barbarossa and so forth. And he really wanted to try to capture some of the historicity of that in a fast-moving, simple game. And I think it's no understatement to say that as far as we're concerned, he's done an outstanding job of getting there. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you actually do in a game of Quartermaster General Walker? That is your job, after all. No, in Quartermaster General, he's represented all the six major factions, and they each have their own deck. They all have, they're all of different sizes, and they all have key components of what that nation brought to the war and how he's done it is brilliant. And like Mark said earlier, you're going to, all you need to do on your turn is play a card, and every territory on the map can only have one figure per faction. And when your deck is is been exhausted because that's part of the the jobs of some of the nations is to attrition out some of the decks and you have to make some uh, key decisions on what cards you're going to throw out or how many cards you're going to throw out. And if you are asked to discard a card and you cannot, then your team will lose a point. And then after 20 turns, I believe, the game is over or unless a side gets to 400 points Whoever has the most points wins, and that is Quartermaster General. It's called Quartermaster General, and it's worth emphasizing because this is a game mostly about supply. And it's not so much about tracing supply lines, although that does enter into the game, and indeed we'll talk a little bit about how it changes from game to game. But to my mind, the key way it's about supply is is about your deck is your supply. There are a variety of effects that can cause you to discard cards, either because of something that you do that's considered expensive or something that targets you through various means of economic warfare, which is a recurring theme throughout all the all the games in the series. And some factions have a really, really small decks, and their decks can indeed be exhausted over the course of the war. And then they're just going to start being a serious drain on their team, a, a, a massive source of point loss because they're completely out of cards. Sometimes that was their fault, sometimes not. But in any case, there is this solid sense of being able to pick on the weak faction, usually in the context of of the original Quartermaster General. This is either because you're pounding the ever-loving crap out of the Soviets as the Axis powers, or because you're ganging up on either the Japanese or the Italians, if you're in the case of the, of the Allies. And 
This can be through a whole bunch of historical events like the sinking of the Lusitania or uh, due to firebombing Dresden or all manner of other things. On top of this, you have all the historical chrome that you might associate with traditional armies like the Soviets' famous unwillingness to surrender or the Wehrmacht's famous blitzkrieg capabilities or the British knowing to have dominance over the seas. This is all, again, handled through cards. All the chrome, all the historical detail, all that texture, these all come out through cards. There are these status cards that you can play that give you a permanent special power for the rest of the game, and many of them are amazing, but they crucially cost tempo because, once again, in this game, you play one card on your turn. And in Quartermaster General, if you are looking at a front and you have to ask yourself, do I want to move that front or do I instead want to give me this special ability for the rest of the game? Because if you blink at the wrong time, you may find your home space occupied because the opponent has managed to push when you just wanted a moment to breathe. So it's about tempo, it's about supply, it's about carefully marshalling your, your forces rather than just actual fights because the fighting itself is trivial you play a card that says i kill an adjacent army and that's it that's all there is to it um, until you add the expansions so again it's a, the the audacity in this design of quartermaster general really every time i sit down to play it it, it impresses me once uh, uh, once anew yeah not only are the cards a resource that you have to manage but also the your figures because you have a limited supply of pieces that you can put on the map you only have so many soldiers you only have so many boats and once that runs out then you can't play anymore on the map so you have to be very careful about where you're deploying your forces you don't you don't want to uh, you know knock your boats off into a section where they're not needed type thing and then you know be restricted about where you can put them later on in the game absolutely now, there's one thing that I think is is a bit of a problem with the original Quartermaster General, and that's that it wasn't designed with the expansions in mind. It's the case that as the expansions come out, this is clearly Ian Brody's attempt to not necessarily fix perceived problems, but it's his attempt to elaborate on the formula in much the way that he did with the other designs. For example... It is the case that he has these cards called response cards in Quartermaster General. And the way that it works is you spend your entire turn playing a card face down and it might flip up at some instance and and do some response thing. But then he decided that he wanted to have instant cards that come directly from your hand and do something the moment that they're played, which in any other game would be called probably a response card, or in any other game where there were response cards, that's what they would be. But he'd already called them response cards. So when he had when he introduced this kind of card in the first expansion, Air Marshal, he had to call them something else, so they're called bolster cards. So there are a couple of ways in which the original design, although in many ways it's the best because it's the most approachable and it's the most clean, there are some elements that I think indicate that he didn't really know where the system was going. Do you ever have that impression? It's true. I, it seems though it's very much a work in progress, and he really and you can tell that he felt that he was going to be putting more into it after the fact, or that he cut back a little bit, either due to production or whatever, or just had some ideas that were yet to be fulfilled and and were upcoming. Because it's striking that Quartermaster General, the original design, is the only one where you only play one card on your turn immediately on victory or death. He'd already introduced this mechanism that he seems to now want to carry forward of you only play one card for its effect, but you can sock away a card for a future turn. Play a second card face down that will then do something later on. They're called different things in different systems. They're either prepare cards or bolster cards or what have you. There's a variety of different ways that he calls them, but... 
it was only in the first expansion to Quartermaster General, the World War II version. See, even the even the nomenclature gets a little bit clumsy because he just called it Quartermaster General Simpliciter rather than Quartermaster General colon World War II or something like that. But in the World War II version, it's only an air marshal that we get to being able to play two cards a turn, albeit that other card relates exclusively to air forces, which just add a little bit of defense to your ability. No longer is it the case that a fight will automatically kill one of your guys. If, if your army is supported by an air force, you can instead soak up that loss through the planes, which is totally how air forces work, as I recall. You know, in tank battles, they would fly very low and intercept tank shells. Yeah, slightly, like they, they turn sideways, block the shell, yeah. take the hit, so the tank's good. I've seen it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's very impressive. Which, again, I think, to me, to me, when I'm looking at the World War II version, it seems like it's still an ongoing work in progress, which is both good and bad. I have, we'll get into this a little bit later, but there are good things and bad things about all the games in the system, but... To a certain extent, insofar as these games are historical war games, and they still kind of are, despite how simple and abstracted they are, the the age-old recommendation in historical wargaming still is best. Pick the theater that interests you the most. Pick the time period that you know the most about and you care the most about. And for a lot of people, that's going to be World War II. Certainly as compared to the Peloponnesian Wars or World War I, right? Correct. And so it's a bit unfortunate, I think, that in a way... Once you add in the other expansions to get a little bit more detail, if you're so inclined, the World War II version seems a little bit clunkier. Yeah, unfortunately, it was the first one he put out, right? And then he could, you know, he refined it after the fact. So maybe sometime down the line, we'll get Quartermaster General 2nd Edition. Maybe, but we have mixed feelings about things like that. (laughs) That's also true. So of the, of the series of games, you played all of them, Walker. Which which one's your favorite? I still like just the basic Quartermaster General for sure. Just for its accessibility, easy to teach, its flow because you just put down one card and it's the next person's turn. You really should have your turn ready to go. But the fights are so easy, like we said. Play a card, remove a guy, only one, usually only one figure per you know section. It's very easy to see you know what's going to happen. There's no dice involved. Just, it's, I just love this game. So there are a couple of problems that I have with the World War II version. Because my, my favorite is the World War I version, Quartermaster General 1914. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is that in the World War II version, Quartermaster General, there are the haves and the have-nots. You can be Germany, which has the biggest deck in the game, and is going to have amazing special powers, and is going to drive a lot of what's going on, which is fine. Or you could have said, be, say, Italy, whose job it is to suffer. And they're probably going to get decked. I've never seen Germany get decked in Quartermaster General, but I've seen Italy get decked. I've seen Japan get decked. I've seen the uh, British almost get decked. But it's the case that in a three-player team, it's kind of unfortunate when one player gets to be the heavyweight and the other two people might have to limp to the finish line and might be the drag on their team. Like, from from a, a macro perspective, I completely understand. The game was designed that way, and indeed, historically, it was that way. You know, the Japanese war machine overextended itself and it was a bit of a problem, blah, 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 blah. But in terms of the dynamics of the players around the table, it is a bit unfortunate to be like, I'm going to be scoring all the points and you are going to be losing us all the points. Well, I, I, I sort of like... The feel that that gives, it really gives you the same feel that Axe and Allies gives you, where you really can't just concentrate on one front. You have to make sure you relieve the pressure from your teammates. 
you know, that's a, a really interesting feeling I get when I play Axe and Allies, and it's really interesting how we brought this into this Quartermaster General game with the way the decks are different and the way the game plays. You can't just concentrate by hammering one person. You have to make sure you balance it with supporting your teammates, and, and it just gives a great feel to the game. I agree that that's definitely there, but I feel that same sort of balance in 1914 and in Victory or Death. In Victory or Death, it's actually relatively interesting. If if I knew more about the Peloponnesian Wars or if I cared more about the Peloponnesian Wars, I'd probably enjoy it more than I do. Again, I think all three designs in the Quartermaster General series are great, but of the three, Victory or Death is probably the one I like the least, primarily because I have the least historical engagement with the conflict. But in, in Victory or Death, the pattern that I've observed is that it's a four-player game, two teams of two against each other. The same player tends to get decked on each side, but it's also the heavyweight, right? It's Athens versus versus Sparta, and they're junior little friends. And the junior little friends go off and try to be left alone and just to score points by snagging up colonies. And Athens and Sparta are, are involved in this giant slugfest, and they tend to run out of cards. So that's kind of cool. The heavy hitters are the ones that run out of steam. Whereas the weaker the weaker versions tend to have a little bit more endurance because they tend to stay out of it for a variety of reasons, both in terms of pressures of the board and, and, and the effects on the cards. Again, as opposed to Quartermaster General, where it just tends to be a couple of factions that tend to have deck problems. In Quartermaster General 1914, we commented on this before, it feels a lot like the historical conflict in that by the end of the game, everyone is exhausted. Everyone's deck is tanked. And yeah, Based on what priorities you make and what cards you play, some decks might exhaust faster than others. But it's not the case that you ever feel like the the redheaded stepchild of the alliance that's dragging everybody down because you've run out of cards and your partner's got a full full hand or you know twenty cards left in the draw pile. So although I appreciate the asymmetry, and I even appreciate that it kind of sort of feels like player elimination without having all the negative impacts of player elimination, I do prefer the team dynamics of games like 1914 or Victory or Death as opposed to Quartermaster General. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I feel as though 1914 is the better game, mm-hmm. but I like Quartermaster General just for the accessibility. Like the multi-purpose cards in 1914 are amazing, and the the sacrifice you have to make with your cards, like the, the trade-offs when you have your hand of cards and you're trying to decide which ones to discard, your your choices in Quartermaster General are much easier. Whereas in 1914, you're really struggling to uh, discard, to figure out which ones to discard. I think that's what I'm getting at, is that in 1914, you really have to have played the game a couple times to know which cards are the most important, to know which ones to discard and which ones to keep. So that's what the accessibility is what I like the best in in Quartermaster General. It is definitely the case that 1914 is less accessible. It's a little more gamerly. But I will I will point out this as, as a counterpoint, because this is one area where I feel like appreciating all the games in the series is actually a bit of a liability. The game does care about supply, and although I said the game isn't primarily about supply lines, supply lines do matter. Supply is handled slightly differently in each of the three games, as you might expect. You know, Supply worked different, differently historically, and they have different maps, even different scales in some contexts. But I have a little bit of difficulty trying to remember the little minutiae of every element of supply because they're really similar except for crucial differences, especially things like how much do your allies help you in supply. And I I will say this, shockingly enough, 1914 has the easiest, simplest supply rules. Your friends never supply you and you only trace supply back to your home area. And that is it. World War II gets a little bit more complicated because your friends don't really supply you except 
unless it's boats, in which case they can kind of help you a little bit, sometimes, maybe, and you care about your home area for scoring, but you can carry supply to any supply route, really, and, you know, I'm exaggerating the extent to which this is complicated, it's not, but in the context of trying to remember all three different games and how they work, because sometimes what I feel like doing is playing a Quartermaster General game, and then it's just a question of how many people show up. If there's four, you play Victory or Death. Five, you play 1914. If there's six, you play the World War II version. Because that that actually, it's worth emphasizing, is another downfall of the series. I really don't like playing these games, except with their maximum complement of players. Giving one player multiple factions to play, multiple decks to manage, multiple hands of cards, I don't think is a very good way to do it. Agreed. I've never liked playing that way, playing multiple characters in an adventure game or multiple things. I think it takes away from the experience of being invested in in the team or faction you're playing or character you're playing at that time. I'm fine with it when there's not a hand of cards. When there's multiple hands of cards, that's where I check out. And it really doesn't work well, especially in the context of this team dynamic. I mean, if you're if you're playing a team game and one member of the team is handling multiple decks and the other member isn't, it's just a little bit of asymmetry that's not, I think, good for the play experience. Even if one of the players is super experienced and the other one isn't. So getting to six may be a, a tough ask, for the World War II version, but that actually is one of its strengths. This is a game with relatively quality decision-making, but that's still very accessible, that you can play with six in 90 minutes. Usually, you're at, at, at that point, you're relegated to games like party games or games that are you know relatively long and two hours plus. So the fact that you can get a quality game of this type for six players is really a triumph. True, but trying to convince people of that when you say, oh, let's play a six-player World War II war game, they're just like, nope. It's true, yeah. The, as as we started out this review, the the audacity of the design, the sort of iconoclastic nature of of Quartermaster General makes it sometimes a hard sell. But he does it, and it does it very well. These are inexpensive, accessible, quality games, and I really do recommend all of them. I recommend that you start with the one that either matches your your playgroup, however, however many people you happen to ha- get to regularly, or whichever conflict you like the most. But you really can't go wrong with any of the Quartermaster General games, as far as I'm concerned. And I like, it's much like the the quality of the game, the components. It's much like Feudum. I really like that base tone, uh, basic color, matte look to the game. I really, it, it's appealing to me. Although they may share some vague visual hallmarks, it is the case, however, that the Quartermaster General boards are marvels of simplicity, whereas the Feudum board is just data layered on data layered on data. So. Correct. Oh, no. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Yeah, the actual you know, consistency of the board is different. It's just the color palette. I really like that You know, toned down, extremely matte. non. It's. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the series goes. I'm really keen on trying the three-player... Cold War version. At that point, you'll be able to have a Quartermaster General game uh, for any number of players from three to six, which is really quite neat. I find the Cold War a fascinating historical period, and I'm really hoping that Ian Brody brings his same emphasis on historicity and accessibility and getting us something that feels really good, because I really like Twilight Struggle, but Twilight Struggle is a reasonably long game, reasonably involved, and it's only for two players. So, and and that that's the other thing of all the Cold War games that we've seen, and there have been a fair number actually, not just Twilight Struggle. They usually leave the third world out of it entirely, which is fine. I mean, it's 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 a it's a design conceit, and indeed, much of the Cold War was was about NATO and the Warsaw Pact viewing the rest of the world as their playground to engage in pissing matches over. But 
I really am looking forward to seeing what they do with giving China a slightly uh, China and the other members of 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 the non-aligned countries, as it were, a slightly more robust role in terms of deciding the outcome of the game. Yep, that's all I've got to say about Quartermaster General. On to our topic of the week, which is gaming conventions and not convicts. I don't know what I'm going to say now. It's all about putting convicts in your group. I don't know. One of the reasons why I suggested this topic, Walker, was because I know you have been to many gaming conventions in your time. And although you don't go to perhaps as many as you like, you still plan on going to more in the future. And I just wanted to hear, just to start us off, what it is that you enjoy about gaming conventions. Well, there's many things about in gaming conventions that I enjoy. It's a, a really great place to see different types of gamers in and meet new people. And lots of times people are putting on games with different rule sets and manipulating them better, like giant pieces or a different rule set or a different way to do things. And there's meetups afterwards where you're going out to bars and you can see how gamers, you know, interact with each other in a different environment. And, you know, there's cosplay. There's all sorts of things that are going on that are outside of playing the board games. I think in the earlier days, I would go to conventions to play games and then later on pretty well make sure I I do most of the other things because I can just play games at home. I don't really need to go cross-country to play board games. And there's also the, you know, you get to see the new stuff that's coming out. Like back in the day, before the internet, before Kickstarter, before, you know, these giant online stores, it was the only way to get all this new product to see the stuff that was coming out. And that's what I enjoy about conventions. I respect the fact that back in the day you had to ride your Mastodon to whatever city to see the new stuff and you, you, you wouldn't be able to get access to it through the miracle of, of, you know, telephones and telegraphs and other, other manner of modern technologies. But you've actually done a reasonably good job of summarizing a lot of the things that I really hate about gaming conventions. It's really weird. I don't, I don't think I'm half as much of a misanthrope as I joke that I am. You know, I put on an act and I, I talk about how I hate people, and, and to a certain extent I do. But there's there's this incredible sense of self-loathing that sits that kind of sits on my shoulders and weighs me down the instant I show up at a gaming convention. Because I've been to a number of gaming conventions of various size. The biggest one I went to was Gen Con. The smallest ones I've been to where there were uh, relatively small ones in New England, roughly the size of TabsCon if you've ever been to any of those. And whether it's a room of about 60 or so gamers in some sort of legion hall or ballroom or something, or whether it's thousands of people at a convention center, it usually takes me about five minutes of looking around and thinking, oh, these are my people. I must be a terrible, terrible human being. It just makes me want to bolt. Wow. Look, it is what it is, right? I just... So, okay, let's talk about cosplay, first of all, right? Because <laughs> you mentioned that as one of the one of the things that you might find at... At, at conventions because very rarely is it at, at, at many of the conventions where there's lots of tabletop gaming it's not exclusively for tabletop gaming I don't think you see much cosplay at exclusively tabletop no, and it's definitely not something that I go to see but I mean I, I can see the people that are there that are enjoying it thoroughly like I never go to you know the parade at Gen Con nor do I you know seek any of this out but like I said as when you when you're there you see them walking around and you can see them very much enjoying themselves yeah yeah look i don't want to take anything away from people that enjoy stuff that i don't enjoy this isn't me trying to rain on anyone's parade i'm not trying to say that you should stop going to cons or anything and i certainly don't have i don't begrudge anybody who engages in cosplay cosplay is you know not to mince words it is an art form 
it's just not an art form that is indicative of the kind of activities that I personally enjoy. Specifically, I think I think I, I tried to think of a way to characterize it overall. It's ostentatious displays of fandom. That's what makes me fundamentally nervous. It's sort of group signaling in a hardcore way that makes me maybe this is just the, the the sort of reactionary contrarian nature of me. It's like when a whole bunch of people are getting together and publicly declaring we're all in the in-group now, it makes me want to leave and say, yeah, I'm not there. I guess it's the same reason why I view religion as primarily an individualistic pursuit, but let's not get too much into that. <laughs> no, no, but like, look, this, this, is, this is me talking about my own preferences, right? That's right. And – a lot of a lot of cosplay is very impressive. I think one of my favorite moments at uh, the, the year I went to Gen Con, there was this guy d- dressed as Sailor Jupiter, and it was very very well done. And he won the con for me, and uh, that was the only that was the only time I've ever taken a picture of anyone in cosplay, and and probably the only time I ever will. And it's very impressive. It's just not for me. It's just that kind of ostentatious display makes me nervous. Is that making any sense? It totally does. Okay, I just want to make recall my my story about cosplay. I was I always. Uh, when I go to Gen Con, I always go to the same artist. I wish I had his name right now because, yeah, I always buy prints. Well, you've seen all the prints that I have downstairs. Yeah. I always buy prints from the same artist. So I'm standing there talking to him, and this young girl comes up dressed identically to a magic card that he issued. Like, to to pick out a single card and to do, like, body makeup and costume and everything that looks exactly like it for this, you know – one artist, I was just blown away. He was blown away. He just like looked over and it was funny because he had one of his banner poles was of that art and she was standing beside it and sure. you could see how blown away he was. It was it was a sight to see for sure. And look, I had a very nice – and indeed, I, I had lots of nice experiences at Gen Con. Many of them were with uh, the mutual friend of ours that I went with and indeed part of that was, well, I didn't have to leave home for this. And one of it was I had, a, I had a lovely conversation with the guy who ran Geek Chic. It's actually very sad because Geek Chic went out of business because they acquired a company without doing due diligence. And it turns out they just got a whole bunch of debt. So they had to, they had to go under. But I had a very, very nice conversation with him. He, ta- he quote, unquote, taught me how to drink. We talked about spirits. We talked about his business plans. This was following up on a conversation that I'd had with him at PAX East. My wife and I went to the first PAX East. And the only thing that we both really enjoyed there was talking with this guy about architecture and furniture design. And those were very pleasant. But this is the con- but but at the same time, I felt rather guilty because we're talking about a convention where there's thousands of people and he's there for business. And I took up like two hours of his time just having a one-on-one conversation. And those moments when they happen, I agree, are, are you know, it, it's like magic. I just never feel like... Going to a massive convention space, going to the time, effort, and money involved in going to these kinds of events ends up paying off well enough in those kinds of experiences. The experiences that I look back and remember fondly are precisely those, you know, those one-on-one interactions that I have with people. And sometimes they happen in conventions, but I don't feel conventions are are a good venue for that. I think the other other thing is that we might be spoiled. Here in our little town, we have... Three gaming stores, one of which was fantastic with loads of space. We have uh, multiple groups that get together here. I traveled across Europe where we get a lot of games in from Europe, and I did not see the same sort of thing. There's not the gaming stores. There are, they are there, but they don't have the space that, that we have here. Maybe it's a North American thing. Maybe, you know, you've been in a lot of places in the States. Maybe they have the space, but I think maybe we are just spoiled here, and conventions are a great place 
to get your game on. Like maybe some people in these small towns or in places where gaming's not as prevalent, there's a place that they can go and play a lot of games. Sure, that's entirely reasonable. I think that that's part and parcel of why I don't like travel. As, you know, a, a, a spoiled middle-class jerkwad, I've been able to spend a fair amount of time and money crafting my domestic situation to be more or less exactly as I want it. And now I'm in the position where travel seems like a curse because it's just leaving the place that I want to be. I've made home the place that I want to be. And so leaving it, spending tremendous quantities of money and time to go be away from this environment that I've carefully crafted seems like a torturous, pointless waste of time with some very, very rare exceptions. So in the same context, knowing that I have regular access to gaming probably makes me less inclined to go to conventions. I mean, yeah, you talked about, you know, getting access to, to, seeing the newest things well you know people like you and i are usually at the tip of the spear anyway you know trying out the newest stuff and and being able to trade for or acquire new games and 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 play them on the reg and in terms of going and getting my game on for two or three solid days again this is this is highly personal but or or at least highly idiosyncratic there's a certain tempo to all day gaming events that really wear me out Usually what I need between every game is like a 10 to 15 minute period of decompression. Otherwise I start to get this boiled eyeball feel and my head starts getting overworked with all the different rule systems that I'm expected to interact with. And conventions aren't really conducive to that, at least the ones that I've been to. It's usually just this constant press for more and more and more. And it's just, uh, I'd rather just, you know, I'd rather play a game every day uh, for a week than play five or six games in the course of a single day. That just... It, it, it ends up being unpleasant for me. Yeah. In my present time, I have no wish to go any to, into any more conventions. I go to conventions now because a friend of ours has a business that he brings product to a convention. So I'm helping him set that up and do things there. And that was pretty well the only reason I play enough games at home. I don't need to go anywhere to play games. Because the other side of the coin is you're not always – I don't want to put a negative spin on it, but – But it has happened. You're not always going to get a great experience in all the games you play at a convention. There's going to be terrible rules explainers. There's going to be people that are just opening up a game or reading from the book or they don't even look at the book and they're spouting out rules that you know are false. And then you, you know, grab the book and you say, no, you know, maybe we should do it this way. No, no, no. I know the designer. This is the way <laughs> all of their games are like this. We're going to play it this way. And, you know, the one or two people you're playing with, you know, have those traits that you just, you know, don't get along with and you don't have a great experience. But I think that it's all about that also builds your character. Don't you think, you know, helps you helps you as a gamer accept more and different people maybe. I, I don't know. People are savages. And look, again, when I went, just talking about the last convention I went to, which was Gen Con last year, there were, I met a very, very nice guy at the the airport. We had a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with the guy who founded Geek Chic. I talked with Ian Brody. That was great. But that's a very small number of interactions over the course of, you know, four or five days that cost many hundreds of dollars. And... I wish that more frequently I could be in situations where you could be a little bit more selective about the people that you expose yourself to, which is why my actual ideal gaming environments are, and and there have been a, I've known a couple of different people who do this, who basically throw like private conventions. They have about 20 people over, some people stay overnight or spend the weekend already, or maybe it's just one day. That's my ideal jam, where 
I don't necessarily know everybody, but everyone's at least a friend of a friend. And here I'm not talking about the actual gathering of friends. The gathering of friends is now huge. It's this massive thing. It's an industry thing. It's not It's not what it started out as, you know. But it started out very much the kind of convention that I like. Alan Moon is like, I want to invite my friends over and we'll have, you know, a, a weekend with just people that know each other. And now it's not that anymore. It hasn't been that for years. But this... This kind of environment where you're, you at least know that you're all in the same social circle. You know, for, for my misanthropic, uh, socially stunted self, that's that that that's more my speed now. And to be fair, this isn't even a question of aging. I've always been like this. So you're right. Maybe it's just because we're spoiled. Maybe it's just because we have a a, a really good environment. But you know, quite frankly, I'm in a position now where I only need to be exposed to strangers more or less one or two at a time, and that's okay with me. No, and I don't want anyone to think that they shouldn't go to conventions after listening to this. I think if you've not been to a convention, it's definitely something you should try at least once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you should try everything at least once. Well, more or less everything. I wouldn't recommend cyanide. And it really helps you get out of, like, say, if you're in a rut or a bubble and you think you need to try new things, there are tons of things to do at some conventions. Some are some conventions are just gaming, but things like Gen Con, they have all sorts of you know, extracurricular activities that you can try out and maybe you'll find something you like that you didn't know you're going to like. And again, I'd just like to emphasize if I've ever met you at a convention, this isn't about you. Specific- See, the, the, the way that I put it is I hate people. But once I meet you, you're not just people anymore. You're a specific individual and then everything's fine. I'm not, I'm not ruling out the possibility of going to another convention ever again in the future, but I'd have to be very, very, very carefully selective about it. So true. If it's your jam, more power to you. Well, that just about closes us off for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Long About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, although I don't know why, because strangers are terrible, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. Actually, Walker's a good guy. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, which would be a mistake, on Twitter at all the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Hey, if you like this show, tell a friend. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat mother of three, and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast.